This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Robert Tierney about Tropics of Savagery, the Culture of Japanese Empire in Comparative Frame. Tropics of Savagery was published by the University of California Press in 2010. Dr. Tierney is a professor of Japanese literature at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Dr. Tierney. So our first question is always biographical. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up, and how did you become interested in Japanese literature? Sure. Um, I grew up in, uh, in southern Massachusetts, uh, near uh, Fall River, uh, and then lived in the Boston area, uh, where I studied undergraduate. And uh, I decided to, I studied actually French literature in my undergraduate uh, years, and then after that, I lived for some, some time in Japan and decided to go back to graduate school and study Japanese literature. So that's, uh, that's in a nutshell, uh, where I'm coming from. When I was in graduate school, I was doing Japanese literature, undergraduate French literature, which is one reason why I guess I'm a comparativist. That makes complete sense in the way, uh, you know, how your trajectory took you to, to this book. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, so could you tell us about the genesis of this project? What made you want to write this particular book? Yes, uh, this is, it's a, uh, it's a development of, of my, um, my doctoral dissertation, which I did at Stanford. I completed my degree in 2005. Um, and I wrote the book uh, the next few years after graduating when I was working at the University of Illinois um, I guess the project has a older uh, beginning because I really came to this topic while I was a student in the uh, graduate program at Stanford. Um, and I took a course, I think the first year that I was at Stanford on uh, the Japanese empire that was taught by Peter Deuce. Um, and uh, that made me think that maybe what I wanted to do my own research was to look into the Japanese empire and study its its culture, study its uh, study the literature that, that came out of it. I remember reading a um, a comment, I think, by Marius Jansen that the Japanese empire produced no Kipling or produced you know no great writers, no great cultural products came out of the empire. And uh, I, you know, I was I was interested in that statement, but I was also somewhat skeptical about it and thought that maybe simply this topic had never really 
and studied. Great. Thank you so much. That's fascinating to hear that this came out of those sort of um, graduate classes. Um, so now getting to the content of the book, could you begin by explaining what you mean by the title, Tropics of Savagery? Yes. Uh, and the subtitle, The Culture of Japanese Empire and Colonial Frame, as it gets to the heart of your book. In comparative frame. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, yes. Uh, this, uh, the title, and both both have a, have a meaning, I think. Um, so the trop- tropics of savagery uh, had to do with the, the identification of, especially in uh, Western discourse, but even in Japanese discourse, of savagery with the tropics. So uh, that was uh, one reason for uh, the topic. And of course, the word tropics has uh, a a kind of uh, double meaning. And I'm using Mm -hmm. it in the sense that uh, Hayden White refers to uh, tropics of discourse, Um, that in other words, tropes. Because actually what I'm looking at is tropes of savagery in addition to something that is sort of set generally in the tropics. Uh, the two places that I look at are sort of tropical. Um, as far as uh, the culture of Japanese empire in comparative frame, one of the ambitions, I think, of the book is to try to fit the, ja- I mean, the, often the Japanese empire, particularly not so much now, but at the time that I began my graduate study, was sort of overlooked in most uh, international or global studies of world empire. Um, and as I said, I think this has changed uh, over the last couple of decades, but um, certainly when I was studying, it seemed as though the Japanese empire was a bit of an exception. It was studied sort of in isolation. And my attempt is to sort of fit Japan in a kind of comparative frame Japan as a colonial power uh, in comparison with, uh, you know, England, France, other countries, and uh, to also fit Japan within, uh, I think, a post-colonial theory, which primarily, uh, you know, the the empirical cases upon which most of the theory is based are actually based only on the English empire or perhaps the French. And mm-hmm. so uh, one of the things that I think I'm trying to do in this book is to, um, by putting it in a comparative frame, to also challenge some of the ideas in post-colonial theory uh, to kind of, to, to make it a, a what if uh, a post-colonial theorist had considered Japan instead of England as mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the uh, paradigmatic case of empire. And uh, this is, it's one of the purposes of the book. And I think, uh, I mean, I think this is also maybe uh, other writers who've written about, let's say, the German Empire or the Spanish Empire have also, I think, uh, recently uh, started to question some of the uh, theoretical constructs of the- of postcolonial theory and uh, to-, to better uh you know, uh, situate their own field of study. This was one of the ambitions of my work. Thank you. Um, now, sticking with a sort of method- methodological questions, um, you know, you discussed James Clifford's argument that every ethnography about another culture is also an allegory about the ethnographer's own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about how you read allegory within, you know, Japanese colonial literature as a way to understand Japanese imperial culture? Yes. Um, I, you know, I think uh, allegory 
is uh, comes up in many different ways in this uh, in this topic, and part of it is, um, you know, the, the when James Clifford is writing, he's also writing about the ethnographer, uh, the the writer about another culture, and so I would include myself in this as well. I mean, I, I wrote this book in two thousand ten, but I did most of the research. Uh, about a decade earlier. And of course, I was uh, appalled by what was going on in the United States at that time, uh, and particularly the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I was, it was frankly incomprehensible to me what was going on, but also this uh, kind of uh, discourse about uh, terror and uh, which reminded me a little bit of savagery. So in some way, I think I was writing about myself in writing about this, uh, using the Japanese case to understand my own situation as an American. Uh, But there's also, I mean, I I, I think uh, in the book, I talk about allegory. uh, I talk about, for example, uh, allegory as a way of saying something that cannot be said directly saying it uh, through a kind of coded language. And this would be, for example, the case of uh, Sato Haruo's story about set in Taiwan, but actually uh, most likely a, um, uh, a kind of allegory about the recent massacre of Koreans during the great Kanto earthquake. Uh, so so um, I guess... Uh, that would be one use of allegory t- saying another one would be allegory as a kind of uh, the, uh, something like uh, momotaro, uh, which could have several different meanings. And uh, this would be, it could be a story about, uh, you know, um, a kind of folklore story, but it could also be, have more kind of ideologically tinged uh, meanings, such as uh, an allegory about the Japanese empire. And this is uh, something that I explore by looking at different writings about Momotaro. Um, in some way, allegory is uh, part of every, uh, every chapter in this book. So it's a kind of method of reading, I think. And it's it's to look for another level of meaning behind behind the the surface level of the text. Just as Freud looked at uh, dreams and and found latent meanings, I think I'm looking for latent meanings of colonial literature, which can deepen our understanding of them. Thank you, and yeah, it's really it does come through in in you know throughout your book. So thank you for laying that out uh, in the introduction. Now, staying with the introduction, you also discuss the idea of the Japanese Empire being different to yet mimetic of Western imperialism, and describe it as an interstitial empire. Uh, could you expand on your conceptualization of the Japanese Empire as well as discuss the significance of the concept of mimicry in your book? Yes, um, you know I think. Uh... When we talk about modern Japan, uh, we're really dealing with this uh, a, a big break with Japan's past because of this intrusion of Western imperialism. And uh, Japan is, you know, it's it's opened up. Uh, it's uh, or we speak of the opening of Japan, uh, the crisis of Japan, the Meiji Restoration. So there's a kind of uh, violent uh, and sudden uh, break 
in the way that the Japanese, uh, you know, Japanese history. Uh, now, I'm a modernist, so that, that means that I'm primarily concerned with the modern period of Japanese history. Um, but almost always when we refer to modern Japan, we're talking about Japan as in some way uh, westernizing or modernizing. Um, and uh, this, uh, this is where the, the, the mimetic aspect of, uh, of the Japanese empire comes in, I think, that there's mm-hmm. a, this is something that's not just uh, re- relevant to Japan as an empire, but relevant to Japan in general. And I think uh, uh, one of the interesting things about this is that Japan, although it's not colonized, it is uh, in this uh, treaty port system, which was also applied to uh, China after the Opium War. Japan is, uh, you know, subject to uh, extraterritorial uh, judges, to uh, the application of Western law in their own country. Um, uh, no freedom to set its own tariffs. So the, all these policies are imposed upon Japan. Although Japan is not formally made into a colony, uh, this uh, does account for a certain, uh, some aspects of what will later become the Japanese empire. That uh, the ja- And also the other thing I would say is that the uh, sense of Japan as uh you know, Asian, an Asian country in a mm-hmm. world dominated by Western countries and the racism uh, that Japanese uh, discover overseas. It's not saying that there's no racism in Japan. There certainly is. But mm-hmm. there's Japan in the early 20s and uh, during that period between the two wars uh, does, in fact, uh, confront uh, examples of American and European racism, particularly uh, during the the Versailles Treaty negotiations, um, and so this is uh, this is, I guess, where the interstitial idea comes: that Japan is somehow between um, Western empires and uh, the Asian uh, countries that it wants to colonize. It's in some ways it's closer to them, um, and this is also uh, influencing the rhetoric of the Japanese Empire, which often. Uh, posits a kind of similarity uh, between colonizer and colonized. And I think this is something quite different from, let's say, Saeed's idea of Orientalism. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No, that was really helpful. And I think the ambivalence that comes through in the rest of your chapter sort of, um, you know, uh, is captured by the interstitial empire, the idea of it being sort of in the middle somewhere. Mm. Um, So in chapter one, you talk about the Japanese colonization of Taiwan and focus on the trope of the savage Aboriginal headhunter. And these are all obviously square, uh, scare quotes. Yeah. Um, interestingly, you argue that in uh, that post 30s, 1930s Japanese colonial writings not only reflected a growing disillusionment with capitalist modernity, they also illustrate a shift from the quote rhetoric of domination end quote to a rhetoric of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain what you mean by this and how it relates to colonial writing on Aborigines in Taiwan and Japanese occupation there more generally? Yes. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting that Taiwan is a very complicated uh, 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 island and it, it, it was colonized by a number of different powers um, and Japan 
you know, between it, it also colonized Taiwan for a longer period of time than the other uh, areas of the Japanese Empire from 1895 to the end of the Second World War. So that's it's 50 years. And so there is you can see some interesting things going on. You can see an evolution. You can see changes. And I guess that's what I'm uh, positing in this chapter, that there's um, there's a kind of at first, uh, actually, the when Japan uh, colonized Taiwan at first, the opposition was the the Han Chinese population, uh, which mm-hmm. rebelled against the Japanese uh, invasion of the island. Um, and uh, if anything, the Aborigines who were more in the center of Taiwan were seen as potential allies to be won over. At some point, this uh, changes when Japan decides to. Um, take over the resources, or um, in the in the uh, the mountainous part of Taiwan, and particularly camphor. At this time, that was a major pro- pro- project product in the world market. Um, and uh, so, at that point, then the rhetoric becomes that these people are headhunters, they're savages, and Japan sees itself as a civilizer. Uh, this is something that you see in the, uh, I guess you'd call them narratives of conquest in the early part of the empire. But later on, and this is uh, quite interesting because there is a, a, a very huge rebellion against the Japanese um, in, in uh, 1930, uh, known as the Musha Rebellion, in which mm-hmm. uh, Aboriginal uh, belonging to one group attack a, uh, a kind of sports day and massacre um, more than 100 Japanese. This is, uh, but it's, it's after this event. Uh, now, the, there is a military response to this. Japan uh, really uh, takes over, uh, eliminates the rebellion, uh, kills hundreds of people and so forth. But um, there's also a, a kind of shift in... Uh, I guess to something more like the noble savage rhetoric that mm-hmm. uh, there's the, these people are seen as somehow perhaps doomed, uh, but uh, as noble and uh, they are noble because they're natural. Uh, and so that a lot of writers uh, and, and in this respect, I think there's a lot of similarity with, uh, you know, stories by D.H. Lawrence or other Western writers that uh, this, uh, attempt to return to the body, to, to the physical life, to mm-hmm. uh, the, the kind of nature, to, des- to the reality of desire, and leave behind our artificial uh, industrial civilization. This is something we see in Japanese. And, so, and, and actually, so for that reason, the, the savage takes on this more positive uh, meaning uh, and this is something we see in particularly the literature on Taiwan. I, you know, I look at the story by, um, what is it? Uh, uh, Oshika Taku. Uh, it, and it's called actually The Savage, Yabanjin. And, and mm-hmm. in that story, we can see a Japanese who is sort of wanting to become a savage. And so this this is... Uh, uh, this is something that we can see in late colonial discourse, and I'd say this shift is taking place because of change. You know, the 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 the, the growth of a capitalist economy, a consumer economy in Japan, 
a shift uh, that's taking place in the in the island events like the uh, uh, the Musha incident and so forth. Um, it's there, there's a there's a rather big shift that's taking place in the uh, in the the period when Japan rules Taiwan, and one of it is concerns this figure of the savage. I think. That's great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that chapter and that discussion. Thank you so much. Um, so in chapter two, you explore the work of Sato Haruo and uh, demonstrate the influence of Japanese colonial anthropology on his writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you expand on this through describing your analysis of macho or demon bird as an allegory about the massacre of Koreans uh, in the aftermath of the great Kanto earthquake? You discussed this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if you could expand on it. Sure. Um, well, Sato Haruo uh, is an in- interesting uh, uh, writer, and uh, he actually uh, wrote a lot of works uh, based on his experiences uh, traveling to Taiwan. Uh, I think it was around 1920, if I if I can recall correctly. Um, and he spent a few months in Taiwan, but then later, over the next uh, period of maybe 10 or 15 years, he wrote uh, perhaps a dozen works which are sort of uh, were fertilized by, by that, uh, that trip to, to Taiwan. And while he was in Taiwan, uh, he was uh, befriended by an anthropologist uh, by the name of Mori Uchinosuke, who lived in uh, Taiwan for a long time and uh, had written a lot about uh, the, the uh, different uh, customs of Aboriginal groups in Taiwan. So he was... Uh, this is one thing that I sort of posit in my reading of Macho, that in some ways the narrator of that story adopts a kind of anthropological view of uh, of the the, uh, Aboriginal people and uh, identifies himself in some ways with the the ethnographer. Um, And in fact, the the story of the demon bird, this this bird that if you see it, you, you will die. And there are people that can control uh, these birds who are sort of persecuted. So this this story itself actually does come from a passage in uh, in a work by Mori Ushinotsuke, which I dis- I discovered and and this sort of changed my thinking about this story. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing that changed my thinking about the story was the the actual place. This. Uh, story was published for the first time in Kyo Koron, uh, right after the, uh, the Great Kanto Earthquake. Uh, I believe it was the, the Great Kanto Earthquake took place in September 1923, and I think it was like the next month. Um, so when the, the printing presses started running again, uh, he published this story. And uh, a lot of what's in the story, although he doesn't make any reference whatsoever to the massacre of Koreans uh, in the Great Kanto earthquake, almost everything that's in this story is sort of about uh, this notion of perse- you know scapegoating a scapegoat, finding a scapegoat and uh, persecuting them, and so it seems to fit uh, this uh, this you know this story that rather than write about the koreans he's writing about the koreans through an allegory he's writing about them through this discussion of this primitive uh custom in an aboriginal group that he he read about in a in an anthropological work so i guess the the argument is partly this is a this is an allegory and partly it is it is a kind of 
anthropological analysis of this custom and an attempt to make sense of it. And, and I guess also a criticism mm-hmm. of the Japanese empire. And I think that's that, uh, I guess I, I sort of came upon this interpretation by, by really trying to figure out what this story was about. Um, and uh, so it, it, it took me some time to kind of put together um, what uh, what the story actually was talking about. I mean, I, I remember I read it in an anthology of colonial period literature. There were this was this came out about twenty years ago, and it seemed like a very interesting story. But I, I didn't realize uh, what the story actually meant until a long time afterwards, after doing research. Fascinating. Yeah, it's a really really interesting reading of of that text. Um, thank you so much. Um, now, in Chapter 3, you shift your focus to uh, Japanese colonial rule in the South Seas and explore Japan's famous folktale, Momotaro. Mm-hmm. Um, could you give the listeners a brief overview of the story of Momotaro um, for those who are not uh, familiar with the story and talk about how it became an allegory with shifting and polyvalent meanings for Japanese colonial interests and rule in the South Seas? Okay, so Momotaro is... Uh... I, I believe when it was first translated into English, which I think took place in early in the Meiji period, it, it, it is the story of Peach Boy. So it's it's a boy who um, is born from a peach, uh, and this peach is floating down the river, and an old childless couple uh, fish it out of the river, and uh, inside they discover a young boy who grows into a very strong uh, young boy and decides uh, that he will conquer the island of the ogres and uh, sets off to conquer them and bring back their treasures uh, with three uh, animal retainers. There's a dog, um, what am I, a monkey, and a pheasant. So these are the, the three uh, three retainers of Momotaro. And uh, so this there's this story that that has existed for a number of centuries, uh, but during the colonial period, um, and this is a, a, an interesting thing in Japan. You know, the, there is a period, I guess, uh, before the Edo period when uh, there are Japanese communities, uh, trading communities. Uh, there's Japanese pirates. Uh, uh, living outside Japan, forming communities in Southeast Asia, for example. But over most of the course of Japanese history, uh, the Japanese are, you know, there's not a lot of uh, heroic figures uh, who are uh, sort of uh, prefigure the Japanese colonial period. And uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, I, and I think it's partly for this reason that Momotaro is uh, seen as uh, somehow expressing this, the Japanese desire to go beyond uh, Japan, to uh, to go to other places and uh, to uh, take them over or bring back their treasures. And for this reason, I think it it, it becomes a um, a an allegory about the Japanese Empire. And and there are specific figures um, I mentioned in particular Nitobe. Um, Inazo, um, mm-hmm. who who is an important figure in many different ways in 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 Japan, um, in modern Japan, as a um, but but his his actual um, his 
academic discipline was a sort of colonial development. Um, and uh, there was a, a chair of colonial development in major Japanese universities, such as Tokyo University. And he was, in fact, the first titular professor of this discipline. Um, you know, in the post-war period, these become uh, sort of the chair of economic development. But it, it's called colonial uh, development or colonial policy in this earlier period. And he, in fact, is the first to kind of uh, describe the Japanese uh, uh, momotaro shugi, uh, this, this uh, uh, ideology of momotaro, that this mm-hmm. is in some ways expressing some deep uh, aspect of Japanese uh, culture and uh, the sort of irrepressible urge of the Japanese to expand. And he explicitly ties it to expanding to the south. Um now there's no there's no location of the Isle of the Ogres, of course, uh, and but this uh, but for that reason it's kind of a plastic concept that can be applied to almost anything, and I think that's mm-hmm. what uh, is taking place in the story. He he uh, situates it as uh, this Momotaro expresses the Japanese urge to go to the south and to take over the tropical products in the south, and other writers after him develop this idea uh, and even uh, turn it into a parody of the Japanese empire. So this uh, this becomes, again, a trope that's used throughout the colonial period to talk about the Japanese empire. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chapter. Um, uh, having heard about Momotaro, but I hadn't you know, heard this reading or this sort of interpretation of it uh, before. Um, so I was wondering if you could read a short excerpt from the next chapter, chapter four, uh, of your book and expand on your analysis of Nakajima's writings. Okay, so I'll read this. Uh, in, in my study of Nakajima Atsushi, I argue that this writer appropriated, uh, quote, uh, Western tinted glasses and used them quite deliberately and self-consciously to situate himself within a Japanese empire. By looking at his colonial fiction, we discover that he was complex, a writer who had ambivalent feelings about his own place about Europe and the South Seas, and about the Japanese empire he both faithfully served and grew disillusioned with. Uh, by looking closely at the narrator's perspective in Nakajima's fiction, I shed light on the ambivalences and aporia that characterize the Japanese colonial gaze at the end of the colonial period. Um, let me, uh, actually, when I started to write my dissertation, I was thinking to just study the work of Nakajima Atsushi, a writer um, I became quite interested in, and I translated some of his fiction. Um, Interesting. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he died quite young. He died in 1942, I believe, <clears throat> maybe about 30 years old. And he, uh, he grew up in uh, colonial uh, Korea. Uh, his father had a job there. He went to uh, a school there, I think a middle school. Um, and then toward the, he, he visited uh, China and uh, wrote a lot of his stories uh, set in ancient China. Um, and then toward the end of his life, he wrote uh, two books that I was quite interested in. One of them was a kind of fictional autobiography of Robert Louis Stevenson. So he had this kind of identification with Stevenson. 
and in fact, uh, you know, he 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 like Stevenson, he he suffered uh, from uh, lung problems. He died quite young, uh, and I think he saw Stevenson as a kind of romantic figure. But one of the things that probably really interested him was uh, Stevenson's writings about the South Seas, and so uh, he writes this biography, and then he himself quits his job in Yokohama and goes to Japanese-ruled Micronesia and lives in Palau until the start of the Second World War. And then he goes back to Japan, uh, publishes some of these works, and dies in 1942. So this, uh, I guess this idea of Western-tinted glasses is that, um, you know, when we think of modern Japanese literature, we often are going to think of uh, things like... uh, you know, uh, the theater, the uh, uh, modern poetry, the novel, mm-hmm. uh, short stories. Uh, we think we're thinking of essentially Western forms uh, that are uh, are adopted by Japanese. And another thing that's adopted by Japanese is uh, this this idea of looking at the world through kind of Western uh, glasses. And this is clearly the case in with uh, Nakajima Atsushi. The, one of the reasons he sees the South Seas as so interesting and so exotic is because he's very interested in writers like Pierre Loti, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Melville, um, or Gauguin. Uh, all of these figures that are in Western culture, they've created this uh, the South Seas marvelous, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, so he identifies with this but at the same time, and this is one of the interesting things in his fiction, he he sort of uh, can detach himself from this fascination and uh, step back and say, this is inauthentic. <laughs> I, I'm not really looking at these people. I'm not really looking at the... Uh, and he does this in one of his stories. And I think when we read his stories, we can kind of see he's trying to figure out his own place uh, as a Japanese imperialist, as a Japanese uh, colonial official, which he, he was when he was in, in Palau, uh, and situating himself with regard to uh, both Europe and the South Seas. Um, and so I guess uh, he, for that reason, he was kind of a fascinating figure for me. That was why I was sort of interested in just focusing on Nakajima Atsushi at the beginning but in the end, I, I I sort of just made you know he was sort of late in the Japanese Empire, and I guess I I made it for that reason. I made him the last uh, major chapter of my book. That mm-hmm. he was uh, the the other periods like uh, Sato Haruo was sort of in the Taisho period, a kind of liberal interlude in the Japanese Empire, and then the first chapter is looking sort of at the earlier uh, period, the earlier the conquest of the uh the mountainous parts of taiwan so this mm-hmm. is uh, this is late late empire i guess i just had a quick uh, sort of follow up question you know reading this chapter um and the other chapters as well you know you you talk uh, you know about the ambivalent feelings and sort of feelings of uncomfortableness or mm. doubt um do you think there's a you know, guilt is not a word I heard, uh, I read, I don't remember reading, but I was thinking, you know, is guilt one of the, one of the ways you can sort of think about how they were, um, you know, thinking about the Japanese empire and what it was doing on the ground? Yeah, I think there was definitely guilt, um, feeling that they were doing something atrocious. 
Um, uh, particularly in the case of, uh, you know, Nakajima Atsushi, he was sent there at a time when they were trying to, uh, uh, I, I think, change the educational system to make people identify more closely with the Japanese empire. This has been studied much more probably in relation to Taiwan or Korea, especially. Mm-hmm. But this was these these late uh, imperial policies. This was actually what he was he was working in a kind of uh, in the school system to create better textbooks to teach Japanese language. And so I think he did feel some guilt and also that uh, that, uh, you know, terrible things were going on in mm-hmm. in the Japanese Empire. So I guess, uh, yes, there was some guilt. In, Great, in him and other writers too. Great, thank you. Um, it definitely came through in this chapter in particular for some reason, but I think, yeah, it, it probably was there in others too. Um, so now in the conclusion, you look at continuities and ruptures uh, of the trope of savagery in post-war Japanese writings, this time through novels uh, that feature cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about how, while the trope of savagery continued, it took a very different form in the post-war period, in the, conste- in the context of the Japanese defeat in the Second World War and the ensuing Cold War? Yes. I, you know, I, 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 I stopped this sort of fairly early uh, in the post-war period. And at one point, I, I almost intended to write a second uh, sequel. Um, which would look at the later development of this theme of uh, savagery or um, how this, uh, you know, kind of develops into a consumer culture stressing tourism to the, the, uh, the, the tropics. Um, however, I never, I never did that. Um, and I, I, um, instead, I, I looked at this sort of brief period after the war when there are a number of uh, writers who are looking at the theme of cannibalism. And this is in uh, some of the post-war novels, uh, uh, for example, Fires on the Plain, uh, which everyone sort of reads as an anti-war novel, but it Mm. definitely features uh, cannibalism. And partly I think this is because uh, you know, at the end of the war, the soldiers sort of abandoned on these uh, on these islands, such as the Philippines or Papua New Guinea, uh, had no supplies, no food, nothing. And there were cases of cannibalism, and this has been studied uh, in 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 different contexts. But in this case, it's it's uh, the Japanese who are the cannibals, rather than the uh, the savage other. And so I think that in some ways this is a continuation of this theme of the uh, of the savage, but this is and this is definitely combined with war guilt. Um, so this uh, feeling of remorse for what mm-hmm. what had happened during the war is expressed through the trope of the cannibal. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, in the pre-war or pre-45 period, what is sort of hinted at. Is much more upfront in the post-war context. Yeah, and it's more. It's it's no longer uh, this kind of way of talking about yourself. We're talking about other people. It's actually it's looking, uh, you know, particularly in fires on fires on the plane. It's it's looking at uh, the experience of Japanese soldiers, and Mm -hmm. uh, there are other accounts of this too. And this has been also. 
you know, this has been in movies. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of what's the, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now, but uh, uh, the, 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 the emperor, the empire, the emperor's imperial army marches on or something. There's, there's something about a, a, um, it's, it's a documentary movie about, uh, Japanese uh, later, I think it's in the 70s or 80s, who goes mm-hmm. after uh, kind of uh, officers in the army at this time. And in fact, what he discovers is uh, this kind of cannibalism. And this is a, this is actually a documentary movie uh, mm-hmm. that came out, I think, in the late 70s, I, I, I believe. But in any case, this is a topic that has been explored and continues to be written about um, you know, long after the war. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so before we end our discussion on your book, I was just wondering if you had any general thoughts about the relationship between the fields of history and comparative literature. I recognize these, you know, fields are the the boundaries are a lot more porous um, and there's a lot of sort of borrowings. Um, and for instance, thinking, you know, with uh, Tropics of Savagery, can engaging more with literature help us ask questions uh, about intellectual and political cultures of empires or, you know, other political forms in ways um, that maybe other historical texts can't? Yes. Um, I mean, I think that um, that this book, although it is primarily an intervention in in the field of, uh, of literature um, and the main texts that I look at are literary, I also, um, I mean, I have a kind of cultural studies approach to this that I'm looking at uh, this literature as a type, a type of uh, uh, a type of writing with connections with all the other discourses that are going on at the same time. So, mm-hmm. uh, for that reason, I think um, you know, the, for, for example, in uh, in the chapter on uh, Sato Haruo, I look at the the beginning of Japanese anthropology, and then I try to relate it to that story. Uh, in mm-hmm. Momotaro, I'm looking at folklore, and in, in almost every chapter, I'm looking, I'm trying to uh, trace the history of something and show how it was inflected by imperialism. So uh, the, I, I would say that the the connection between literature and history is, for me, I think it's a it's a it's it's inevitable that if you're uh, studying uh, literary literary text, uh, you We'll also think about the time that it appeared, the um, you know the its relationship to its own period, the society of its time, and so forth. And this is something that I'm definitely doing. So I I do mm-hmm. consider myself then someone who has a historical approach to literature. I- Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, if, you know, if I didn't know you were a literary scholar, this could easily be, you know, a, a type of intellectual history or, or something yeah. in, in that vein. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. I know, but I, I really... This is the direction that I've sort of gone in, in my next book, uh, which I'll talk about maybe some other time. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that this, it's also, uh, it's more implicit maybe in in my book, Tropics of Savagery. The other, the, the comparative uh, aspect, I mean, although I'm not so much uh, drawing a specific uh, comparison between Japanese imperial literature and some other uh, imperial literature, 
I, I think I'm trying to put it in a, it's, I mean, that the subtitle is in a comparative frame. I'm looking at it as an example of this imperial literature, uh, which is, it has its own uh, maybe unique qualities, but it's also has lots of common elements with other imperial literatures. So, and I think that provides the basis of comparison. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so I've taken so much of your time, but before I let you go, could you tell us about your current project? Um, and before you answer that question, I think you've already mentioned this. Uh, I just want to tell the listeners that uh, we will be discussing, um, you know, the the book you did after this, uh, Monster of uh, 20th Century, published in 2015, uh, later this year. Yes. Um, actually, I'm recently I've been working on uh, a kind of uh, a couple of projects, uh, one of them having to do more with a medical, uh, I guess, medical humanities broadly defined. I'm concerned with writings of Japanese writers who uh, know that they're dying and how they write about death. Um, and so that's one project that I'm looking Fascinating. at. Fascinating. And another one is uh, this uh, monster of the 20th century is actually includes a translation of I'm interested in his teacher, Nakai Chomin, who, who translated Rousseau, um, the social contract into Japanese. And recently I've been working on that translation, um, trying to understand, first of all, is it a translation? And then what does it do to Rousseau? How, does, how do you create a Japanese idea of democracy? Uh, so these are some of the things that I've been working on recently. Actually, I'm working on the uh, the Nakai Chomin, as 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 we speak, this is uh, this semester. I'm on leave, and so I've been working on that project. Really look forward to to reading that as well when it comes out. And for listeners who are interested, uh, I I remember listening to an interview uh, that you had on that project uh, on Meiji at One Fifty podcast. So if listeners are interested, they should uh, you know they can find that on the on any of the app stores um, or the podcast apps. Okay, thank you so much.